Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Charles R. Ackland, author of the book American Blockbuster, Movies, Technology, and Wonder, published in 2020 by Duke University Press. While epic films have been popular almost since the beginning of narrative motion pictures, the major blockbuster release has become a normal part of the summer movie season as a way to draw in crowds. Charles and I discuss both the history of the blockbuster as well as how movies like Jaws helped to increase its importance. We also review technological innovations and how they've grown with big films and touch on possible changes to the process given the pandemic. Welcome, Charles Ackland. Hi, Charles. How are you today? Very good. Thanks, Joel. So your book, American Blockbuster, Movie Technology, Movies, Technology, and Wonder, was published a few months ago by Duke University Press, and I'm excited to speak with you about it. Well, thanks so much. This is I, I really appreciate the, uh, uh, the interest, and I'd uh, love to talk, with, uh, talk about this with you. I know you finished it before the pandemic, but it'll be interesting to see what the future of the blockbuster will be as we hopefully transition out of the coming months and years. Well, and yeah, and happy to talk about that because uh, it, it's interesting. I had been working on this book for probably, I mean, it's probably been about 10 years of, uh, of tracking down information. Um, a lot of the material that, uh, that I've assembled here, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's not housed in one single location. It's not like there's a single archive that I could go to. So a lot of the work was trying to track down a lot of uh, a lot of material that's relatively rare or uh, uh, hard to find, and uh, and then of course you know assimilate it and uh, and do the writing, the argumentation, the uh, representation in the uh, uh, in in the book in the final version, but. I, I actually was just doing the final touches just as the pandemic was starting and just as the shutdown was was happening going through the galley proofs and uh, and whatnot and uh, and it's it was one of the things on my mind that if only I had uh, the opportunity to write a coda of some sort uh, that would allow me to begin to think okay what have we learned from this point that's going to tell us about uh, what might happen uh, a, a little bit later yeah, if it was a traditional, popular hardcover, the paperback edition would have the coda in it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Before we get farther into the book, I wanted to get some details about your background. Now, you are a professor of communications at Concordia University in Montreal. That's right. And you've also got a couple other books, including Screen Traffic, which discusses the concept of the multiplex, which I think is interesting by itself, and Swift Viewing which reviews issues related to subliminal influence, not specifically just film-related. When did you decide that you wanted to study and write about film and other communications forms? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, the, uh, I have to say that I am one of these individuals who, uh, you know, from an early age, some of my earliest memories are movie memories. Uh, and uh, and and I, I I I feel as though I grew up as a, as a deep deeply invested fan and uh, someone who just adores the 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 activity of cinema going, the process of of learning and and thinking about 
movies, it was, I can't pinpoint a uh, specific age, but I know that there was a turning point at some point when I was a teenager where I realized you had to remember the names of directors <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, there's, that there are careers here and that there are uh, stylistic connections between the, the films and between the, the, the work that different artists, different talent puts into those, uh, puts into those films. Uh, so I, I feel as though I, I, I grew up with that um, uh, that deep, deep interest and that deep investment in in all things related to uh, moving images. Um, but part of that background, though, was that I, I didn't grow up in a big city where there was a uh, a cinematheque that you could go to and see the the festivals of international films or, or specialized uh, works. I, it was entirely mainstream works and television. And this is where, you know, my formation in terms of my relationship with, uh, with popular film uh, was really formed, which was that I could never be one of those cinephiles that only thought that all of these other iterations in which we encounter uh, the film culture are in some way second rate, right? Or uh, uh, um, uh, devalued versions of what the real film had to be. So television was just as important to me as the Cinematheque, right? Um, the uh, you know the late night moving uh, movies or early uh, early Saturday morning uh, movies, um, uh, which you know whatever the availability happened to be, I would take advantage of that um, and, uh, and and not presume that well these are works that only have to be seen in this kind of cloistered specialized. Uh, environment, and I think that experience really directed my encounter with 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 culture in general, but certainly with with motion pictures, which is that when we talk about these works, you have to think of them as living works right that the, that these are works that move about in the world and encounter people in all sorts of different and unpredictable situations, and practices develop around those so my approach to all of my analysis and all of the work that I do really has to do with that concept of a living culture, right? That people encounter, do things with works. There are conditions that are set out and encouraged, but that one has to recognize and value that, uh, that range of activities and meanings and sensibilities that people build around the works that they encounter. And that was very important to me from, from the beginning. And so it's probably why my degrees are in media, cultural studies, communication studies, rather than traditionally, conventionally, something you would define as film studies, right? I was directed to that cultural dimension from early on. I must admit, the first time I ever saw Ben-Hur, it was on a small screen television. They showed it in its entirety with commercials and everything. And I think I had the flu or something, and I just sat there for hours. And, of course, there's absolutely nothing you can really take from Ben-Hur of any value on a small-screen television that's not widescreen. And the film was shown in, you know, traditional format, full-screen format, where you lose a lot of the spectacle part of it. 
Yeah, that's right. You certainly do lose a lot of the spectacle part of it on depending on the size of the screen and if it's the the kind of screen I grew up with, they're they weren't that big. <laughs> Did you are you so, born and raised in Toronto in, in Canada? That's right. Yes. And uh uh and and you know the the um uh, the, in, in the 60s and 70s, the uh, convention was to use those pan and scan uh, movements, which really altered the uh, uh, the shape and the composition of, of what it is that you were you were watching. It was just a way of adapting those wider screens uh, um, presentations to the uh, to the television context, uh, and it really truly altered altered the work. On the other hand, it is one of the ways in which people encounter these works, right? And uh, after that moment that you just described, you then knew about a film <laughs> called Ben-Hur and you saw it. And even if it wasn't in the format that it was originally conceived, these things have lives and they circulate in this format. And, and acknowledging and taking those things into consideration is, is important. I mean, exactly as you described, I remember my first uh, viewings of... Uh, of Ben Hur and in, in Canada they were they were always timed with with Easter. Uh, it was it was like a special Easter uh, screening, and they would and they would uh, uh, sometimes try to minimize the amount of commercials that were associated with it. But it was an it was an annual event. In the United uh, so it States, was it was watching. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is the Easter movie in the United States. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes they they would do that one too. That's right. Um, but uh, but I, so I associate it with certain kinds of holidays, right? Now that's something that's not necessarily built into the work itself, but does form part of how it circulates in the world and builds different kinds of connections among people, different kinds of communities, and different kinds of meanings. So obviously that was going to be where we were going to go next, was your own experience with the blockbuster film. And when would you say... You actually, if you can remember, I saw a blockbuster in the theater. What was, can you remember one of the first ones that you can say, I saw it in the theater, even if it wasn't on its original release? Gee, I, I would say that probably, if, this, is a, this is interesting because I would say probably my, some of my earliest experiences, and this is going to be very telling for the way the book is structured, are experiences of disappointment. So I can remember um, going to see Oliver uh, and uh, at, at the movie theater. Uh, I'm going to blank out on the year. I want to say it was 69, maybe. Something like it was in that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and understanding at one level, this was a big, important movie, and it was a real special treat to get to see. On the other hand, it was, I remember being so bored and couldn't wait to get out of there. And so, and so that 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 double uh, sentiment of approaching something and understanding its specialness or expectation of uh, a uh, uh, an unusual uh, cinematic experience, and on the other hand, the reality of the antsiness, the boredom, the <laughs> the uh, um, well, sometimes the, the the feeling of of having been Having having been had, right? right. I don't understand uh, what being, the big deal is about. <laughs> it, exactly. Yes, and and so I think that that kind of tug, right, back and forth, is something that many people experience with blockbusters. The the um, the advertising can be uh, annoying and uh, uh, and and distracting, uh, but sometimes it works very well to build up excitement and all sorts of 
uh, and all sorts of different kinds of constituencies and different kinds of fans and uh, uh, and moviegoers. Um, and and sometimes that expectation, right, the, the the thrill of getting to see this next installment in this franchise or getting to see these performers in this particular drama can sometimes be better than the actual <laughs> the actual event of uh, of seeing it and and those those meanings and sensibilities those are important to how we understand and interact with uh, with, uh, uh, with with our movie world with with our cultural environment um, but yeah you know i mean some some really distinctive good <laughs> uh, blockbuster experiences I, I jaws is the one that come re- immediately comes to mind that that it was the the whole um, sequence, the whole uh, event of seeing that movie was really special. I was a little young to see something so violent, um, but nonetheless, uh, the, it was not just me. It was that crowded uh, auditorium where uh, people were. It was it was a carnival. It was a it was uh, a uh, uh, all of those descriptions about a thrill ride or a you know, a roller coaster narrative format. It really was like that. And uh uh that's that was the 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 blockbuster approach um doing what it does best. <laughs> uh and and that is being that, that sort of carnival circus um uh environment and uh and, and that that's one that really stands out. So that's nineteen seventy five. I totally agree with you. Of course, one of the big deals nowadays that wasn't so much in previous blockbuster period times is the concept that now just about every blockbuster is either part of a series or it's a sequel or it's a remake. And the more you do that, I feel, the more the next one, you're you're trying to set yourself up for failure because it's got to be better than the previous and how can you top yourself? And I think uh, at least standalone blockbusters, at least, you know, it's not like they have to be compared to anyone else, anything else. And even good blockbusters with their sequels eventually hit their clunkers. So um, that's right. That's right. Yes. And and I think this is this is partly why I'm fascinated by the anomalous um, uh, entries in, in recent years. So one of the things that I write about in um in the book, well, I make some mention of James Cameron's Titanic, which it's, I mean, it's already 25 years old now. And, and I think it's, it's difficult for people to understand how incredibly counterintuitive that film was. It did not make sense. And in terms of the investment, in terms of the structure, this was a standalone written for the screen uh, uh, without big stars um, and at the, time, at the time, they weren't at the time. That's right. Yes. People uh, listening to this now probably would not necessarily understand that Leo DiCaprio wasn't always a big star. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. He was born a big star, wasn't he? No, he was still a TV actor making the transition to, uh, to the big screen. He'd done some, some good roles before and, uh, clearly had uh, demonstrated his capabilities as had, uh, Kate Winslet. Um, and, and then trying experimental forms or relatively new forms of, of CGI. Um, and uh, technologically, it was a very, very elaborate, complex production. And Cameron was, in many ways, ridiculed, right? He was, it was, 
excoriated in the trade press. This is a failure. This is going to this is going to bomb. This is this is a ridiculous approach. And of course, he proved everybody wrong. And that idea that it's possible to mount what, in many ways, is a blockbuster very similar to the blockbusters of the 1950s, uh, Titanic, um, and and this this standalone prestige film that could cross a number of different um, uh, constituencies and have a have a an intermission. I mean, I would love to to have some documentation of the boardroom meetings of exhibitors when they were presented with this movie uh, and and to think, you've got to be kidding me. I'm only going to be able to do three screenings, turn over the audience three times a day. That's terrible. Well, yeah, um, a three-hour film about the sinking of a boat that everybody theoretically knew would sink. Right, that's right. You know how it's going to end. Right, that's right. So, so that's, that is quite, uh, th- that's an interesting example that just as you know, as as we're starting to see the uh, that franchise blockbuster idea really nailing itself into place in the mid '90s. Certainly, we have earlier versions of it, but it's it's going to become that much more central to how Hollywood works. We also have that anomaly, and so this is why one of the things I spent a lot of time talking about, almost a, a chapter, is is thinking about Avatar, and so he does it again, right? Eleven years later, twelve years later. And uh, uh, he's he's able to to uh, in many ways make an even more substantial, um, uh, substantially innovative uh, contribution to uh, American popular film with uh, with that with Avatar using even more uh, extravagant and uh, less tested uh, forms of of movie making. And uh, and able to actually bring along with that film the conversion to digital cinema, digital projection, and so really helping to uh, encourage exhibitors to make that final uh, commitment to a particular form of exhibition uh, uh, exhibition environment, um, and he also succeeds. So so it's uh, it's it's a very um, very interesting and. Uh, an unusual moment, and again, not part of a franchise written for the screen. Now, of course, the expectation is that it is going to be a part of a franchise. Well, Avatar, uh, we're still waiting. <laughs> so, the book, besides discussing the historical background of blockbuster movies, you also talk about how important they are to the film industry and also their effect on technology and entertainment. But let's talk a little bit about the history part first. The concept of the spectacle isn't even new to the film industry. How did we see spectacles and block, not the blockbuster part of it, because that's a newer word, but just the concept of the spectacle in other ways, primarily before the film industry came along? Oh, yes. I mean, spectacle, one of the features of the concept of spectacle is, is really that idea of putting something on display, orienting something for display. And you can uh, see a long history of efforts to make that putting on for the purposes of display uh, as extravagant and grand as, uh, as possible. Um, and all sorts of uh, earlier iterations of a sort of entertainment 
entertainment that is designed for audiences in such a way that it will feature that sensation, right? The, um, uh, so that you get to, to viscerally uh, experience the unusualness, the, um, the elaborateness, the surprise of the, a, uh, uh, that mode, that extravagant mode of, uh, of putting something on display. And you can you can think of all sorts of versions of that that uh, would go from you know Roman circuses to uh, uh, to traveling uh, traveling plays and players and theatrical uh, uh, events through uh, through earlier earlier centuries. One of the arguments, though, or one of the ideas that many people who write about uh, our the uh, development of our modern world and our modern culture is to say that what begins to happen is that as our interactions with one another become more and more mediated, as our understanding of the social world around us is bound less by the people we meet, but the things that we see represented through the media that surround us. And this is often 19th century as described in, in this vein as, as a uh, as, as an increasing mediatization of, uh, of our world, of especially in industrial societies. As that happens, the idea of putting something on display ends up becoming a more common, more frequent, more, um, more quotidian um, uh, way of countering our world. And so there, there are many really good writers. I would say Vanessa Schwartz is, is one of the people who's written really, really uh, expertly, um, showing us the way in which the history of the 19th century is partly the history of spectacle becoming much more central to how we live our lives, encountering spectacle, viewing spectacle, understanding that uh, we, we come to understand and learn that the world is going to be put on display for us. So, yes, blockbusters are not specifically um, uh, a point of origin, not by any stretch, but that that is in place. And it is, uh, as I'm describing in terms of the American film industry describing in the book, it is after World War II that the industry really begins to bank on this mode, a kind of extravagance, of, of putting unusual events, um, situations, sensations on display that really becomes much more of the core of the industry. Right? There were uh, epic productions prior to, uh, uh, to, to the 19, 1940s and 1950s, but the idea that you would really, an industry would bank on this over other modes uh, is uh, is really part of the story that's being outlined and and described in uh, in American blockbuster. Of course, uh, in the early days of film, people were willing to watch anything because it was <laughs> new. Uh, it's sort of like in the early days of television, people would watch a test pattern practically because it was all they had and it was new. But of course, pretty quickly, people started expecting more. And I think of somebody like D. W. Griffith in the early you know, pioneers of the big film concept. And that's where we first, I think, first see the idea of trying to put on a production that is so big and so involved 
that um, people will be awed by it. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and you could you, know, you could think of Gone with the Wind as another uh, example, but there there are many examples of those grand uh, uh, epic productions and some very good uh, historical writing uh, about that. Um, uh, Sheldon Hall and Steve Neal's work is is very important in uh, in uh, describing and, uh, and and giving us uh, the um, uh, the full historical uh, um, um, outline of, of that uh, of that history, the importance of big productions uh, to the uh, to the American uh, film industry. Um, but during those period, during that earlier period, even as there were efforts to uh, upscale movie going um, and uh, and to add the, with the movie palaces and uh, uh, longer programs of uh, of presentations, um, uh, sometimes uh, you know different kinds of ways of understanding seating or differential pricing, or uh, even things like um, like uh, the, the the quality of the seats and the uh, the quality of the uh, the snacks and the uh, the dress of the ushers. All of these things working to to to, to make movie going a special uh, occasion. And you could see this in the twenties, and you could see this in the nineteen thirties. The core of the American industry was still based around the regularization of movie going, the idea of the habit, right? The, the idea that this is an, uh, a, a relatively frequent activity that one participates in and for the most part relatively affordable. And part of the change that, that I document, and it's where the term blockbuster, right? The term was not used earlier, and sometimes you'll see historians using it, sometimes deliberately and sometimes just because it's easy, anachronistically as a way to describe something that takes place uh, uh, before the 1940s, and that's, that's not accurate. Uh, it is anachronistic. Um, what you begin to see is that after uh, World War II, um, that there are many different competing forces uh, that are requiring Hollywood to rethink what it does and what they end up setting upon. And this, this was not without trial and error and, uh, and some pushback from all sorts of different constituents, constituencies, including exhibitors. What they settled on was the, the, uh, the extraordinary movie-going event rather than the regularized movie-going uh, habit. And that was a considerably different way to organize an industry. Uh, and uh, what is significant about this is that in many ways, this is where we still are today. It's, it's remarkably persistent. Obviously, it's, it, it's different to certain to other degrees, but that idea that we will organize a popular industry based on fewer visits uh, rather than on as many visits to the uh, to the movie theater as possible, uh, and that's that's the uh, that's the uh, the innovation. That's the that's the shift that's uh, that the book documents. Well, I think it's become the normal school of thought, and you can tell me if you've seen anything that would make me wrong. But I don't. I'm pretty sure we're right about this. Is that the introduction of television definitely required the movie industry? to come up with new ways to get people to come back, come into the theaters. And that's when we first see, I mean, there were widescreen formats before, but we start to see them 
used regularly in feature films, you know, in the 50s and, and going forward. And then those are the kind of things where you had to get people in, and so you had to come up with new ways to get them into the theaters. That's absolutely right. The uh, uh, television is a major, major factor here, and but it's a complex one because you could see that early on, um, uh, different Hollywood uh, participants or uh, corporations, companies, production companies, were had their own uh, um, embrace. They they embraced television <laughs> to varying degrees, right? So so some saw, okay, here's another, here's going to be another source of of sales. Here here's here's another um, uh, market for our productions. Um, here's uh, a um, a new, again, more regularized form of uh, of production that we can be a supplier for. So um, sometimes the story is told as a um, as a, a, a Hollywood against television, right? And I think the better story is to think of it in terms of uh, Hollywood reorienting itself, redesigning itself um, in in light of this new context, because by the, the, the mid forties, late forties, it was clear television wasn't going anywhere and they were going to have to uh, adopt, uh, adopt what they, what they did in order to, uh, uh, in order to understand what was their relationship to this. Uh, yeah, I to, can remember back when I was younger, uh, obviously it's going to show my age, but it was when sound of music came out and in Cleveland, they had they had their big playhouse movie theater or theaters. They weren't just for movies; they're still in existence, many of them. And they had the whole thing where you had a reserved seat. Mm. Um, it was an afternoon showing of Sound of Music. You got a program. You got dressed up for it, and this was in the early '60s. So, uh, and it. Having gone to plays and since then, obviously, it they were trying their best, it seemed, to replicate that concept of it's an event. Yes, yes, and uh, and there are versions of that that you can uh, you can still find, and uh, and uh, um, the uh, I, I love the way that uh, Quentin Tarantino had tried to handle uh, uh, the Hateful Eight, uh, where uh, they're seventy millimeter. Uh, release uh, filmed using uh, the same cameras uh, that were that were uh, that were used to film uh, such films as uh, as Ben Hur and uh, uh, others uh, the the Super Panavision uh, uh, cameras this, uh, and uh, you know th- this is um, the the he he even had programs that were handed out at some of the uh, some of the events um, and so that. Uh, that effort to reconstruct that specialness of uh, of uh, particular particular films, we can see echoes from that earlier era. Those those were usually called roadshow releases, and uh, and they really um, uh, were uh, embraced in as a as a model of uh, uh, um, of the ways in which you roll out a uh, a motion picture. There, there were early earlier versions of it, but certainly the 1950s saw a, uh, an effort to, uh, uh, to, to handle, to market, to promote uh, films in, in that way. 
One of the uh, I can one think of, of Apocalypse pictures. Now did the same thing before. It, it's Tarantino interesting. Did. That was the other example that came right. to my mind too. Uh, in fact, one of my great um, uh, flea market finds is actually I have I have a copy of the program that was handed out at the uh, <laughs> at uh, the Apocalypse Now uh, uh, that road show. Uh, I just acquired that not so long ago, and it was I'm very pleased with that <laughs> um, because those, yeah, those programs are really interesting to see how they presented information about the film, not just the film you were going to watch, but also the film as an artifact that people made. Right? What what is what's the technological um, uh, underpinning of the of the of what you're about to watch. What are the the, the stories and biographies of the uh, of some of the key individuals, key talent that are that's involved, and so it gives you this this overview. It treats you almost as a connoisseur, right? Someone who doesn't want to just enjoy the movie, but wants to understand something about its construction. And uh, those those programs are quite uh, quite interesting. So yes, Apocalypse Now. Well, one of the one of the things that uh, that's usually said about the 1960s, though, is that the roadshow mode of uh, of uh, um, handling uh, big pictures was just simply uh, uh, embraced too much, and uh, and it was uh, there were too many films that were uh, uh, presented as though they were these unique special events, and at a certain point, you've just glutted the marketplace and. For every sound of music, there was star. Right, or, Julie uh, Andrews unfortunately got caught up yeah. in some of those pluses and minuses. Yeah, that's right. Yes, or Hello Dolly, or uh, you know all of these uh, these other films, and so they that was always seen as symptomatic of a mode of of, of uh, popular film presentation uh, and and engagement. Uh, running out of steam and and self-sabotaging. The problem with that story, though, is that I think what ends up happening is that people see that as an end, and the story that's frequently recounted is that new Hollywood with this uh, younger, um, more contemporary, perhaps even internationalist film style takes over and redirects the industry, and then we end up with uh, with versions of what uh, what transpired through the '70s and then into the '80s. Um, but I think it's 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 a little bit better, uh, from my perspective, to see the continuity, which is to say that the failure that transpired in uh, the 1960s with the with the glut of too many of these films, uh, it is the anomaly. And that by the time you hit the 1970s, you have all sorts of films that in many ways are trying to rebuild the blockbuster strategy from the 1950s and early 1960s. And arguably, they then revive it in a way that is the success that then moves on into uh, really the, the situation that, that we continue to be in today. So uh, one of the things that I point out in the book, which is something that I don't think is given uh, as much credit as it should be, which is the degree of continuity of this approach to uh, to uh, a big budget, big promotion, uh, motion picture, uh, uh, motion picture extravaganzas. Speaking of which, let's come back to Jaws, since okay. <laughs> released in 75, 1975, and of course, most people believe it's 
the first of the modern the modern day blockbusters even That's though right. it's quite a few years ago now but you know yeah. it's 45 years i think i'm right with my math That's but right. uh, it's there's no question that jaws wrote made the mold that later filmmakers including spielberg himself would either follow or even try to break themselves was yeah. obviously one of the things that you've already mentioned is the idea that these blockbusters weren't necessarily made to be blockbusters. They turned out that way yes. because for a variety of reasons. What yes. What happened with Jaws? I mean, obviously there have been books written about Jaws. <laughs> What's, what was happened with Jaws to make it the blockbuster it, it became? Well, the, the, there's so many factors, and, and I'll just mention a couple that I think tend to be underplayed when they um, when we think about uh, that. Uh, I mean, the things that get mentioned most frequently with the film is the extent of its coordinated marketing, the kind of national marketing that that um, uh, that uh, uh, was able to roll out so uh, to, to roll out the film so successfully. Um, I think that the level of testing was so uh, careful and clear that they had something that was a little bit unusual on their hands. Um, and I think it was also the surprise uh, that, um, that this troubled production by this 20-some-odd-year-old director um, would actually uh, potentially pay off in this uh, in this uh, uh, unusual way, uh, and it was the first to break that uh, hundred million dollar domestic box office gross mark, and so that was the benchmark that uh, that it had, that it set for uh, what would count as a, as a blockbuster. That was a very short lived <laughs> uh, mark, and that mark keeps getting. Uh, Keeps escalating uh, uh, beyond uh, beyond that. But some of the other things um, about uh, about Jaws that that I think are are uh, are, are really uh, really quite quite um, uh, worth noting about it is um, well, one is the 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 um, uh, the extent to which the film really did work on a on that funhouse model. And so people seem to forget that that Spielberg was, I, I guess it's incorrect to call him a horror director, but that he had lots of connections to a genre that um, many people aren't weren't necessarily fans of, right? That it was that he was able to put some uh, elements in a movie like Jaws that conventionally would have been relegated to much more extreme kind of horror fandom and uh you know the, the to it's you know a genre that the audience that went to see see jaws typically wouldn't be welcome seeing right so a lot of the things that he put in that movie and i i, I think we forget about this right were really shocking <laughs> and 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 upsetting uh and and it played to that funhouse uh, element um, and, and I think that that, um, made it that much more of a film that was surprising to people. Did, did you see what I mean? It, it's right. like, it, oh, it, no, it made it, no it made it, yeah, it made it stand out in that way. Um, you know, in terms of Spielberg though, it's, it's such a fascinating career because, 
uh, Jaws was really his third hit uh, by the time, right? So he, he, was, he was tested in, in an unusual, right? It, it, it's an unusual career path. Uh, and, and certainly you can see all of those no, new Hollywood stylistic conventions in his film, the overlapping dialogue, um, even the, you know, the quality of the cinematography. This is all stuff that could have been, you know, if not quite Hal Ashby, heading in that direction, right? There's some Robert Altman that you can see in some of the ways in which he's, uh, uh, he, he um, uh, works to tell, tell the stories that he tells. Uh, but he had already done Duel, which was a surprise hit, and such a surprise hit. And of course, that, that was, at least in the United States, was shown on television. That's right, exactly. And then went to theatrical, so it's, you know, again, breaking the conventional move, uh, conventional life cycle of a, uh, uh, of a filmed, uh, filmed work. Uh, and again, associated to some degree with horror. And then Sugarland Express was, was a bit of a sleeper hit. Um, and so by the time he comes to, comes to Jaws, he has some bona fides to be trusted with this unusual, um, uh, unusual um, production. Uh, and he brought with it some of the more, what should we call them, kind of exploitation elements. And, uh, and, and that really, I think, made it that much more of a distinctive contribution. Uh, than all of the other marketing and things that people usually point to. I don't know if it was his idea by himself, but Stephen King in his uh, book, Dance Macabre, talks about the three levels of horror, and Spielberg in Jaws hits all three of them. There's the, the most cerebral kind, then there's the more gut-wrenching, and then if you can't do anything more, just gut, gross people out. And right. <laughs> And Spielberg does that with Jaws. I mean, he hits all the marks. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I mean, the, there are moments of incredible, uh, in, incredible horror, like gut-wrenching horror in that movie. We might think of it as more of a pop, you know, the classic popcorn movie. But, you know, th there are children who die. Right? <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's not a sort of side thing, right? So it's, it's, it was uh, pushing on some of the extremes of what could take place or transpire in a highly, highly popular film. Uh, and, and I think that's part of its unusualness, uh, that it's, it opens up that possibility for um, certain kinds of representations that conventionally would have been located uh, in more genre niche audience material. And of course, by the time Alien comes out in 1979, the first film, that ends up very quickly being described as a haunted house film in outer space as opposed to yeah. sci-fi, because that literally it's what it was. That's right. That's right. With, uh, yeah, enough jump scares for anybody <laughs> that, they, that they might be looking for. But Jaws is important for so many reasons, and it's, it's it, in the book, I do use it as, um, as, as a... Uh, as an important jumping off point for what I want to explore, because I was, I was still surprised as I was beginning to think about writing something like this, how often I would come across references from relatively knowledgeable sources that would describe Jaws as the first blockbuster. And, and it, it seemed uh, really perplexing to me um, that there was this historical 
um, uh, solidity or convention that that really banked on one understanding of what has happened with with American popular film, and and really, it's I, I, I suppose one way to to say it would be to say that that there there was an overemphasis on Jaws, and and uh, the, the truth is it is an important movie. There's no question, but some of the things that were attributed to it didn't seem to understand that it was drawing on all sorts of other uh, approaches to uh, what a uh, popular film was supposed to do and the kinds of successes that could be expected of a single product. Remember, it's not a franchise product at that point. Um, so this is this is why I really, I really spend some time thinking, okay, why does this keeps getting referred to again and again? Uh, but what else has transpired? And and I have to say, this is you know my curiosity driving me to uh, to to figure out more about this story because the blockbuster it's it's one of these works, it's one of these cultural entities that everybody seems to know about, and yet its its definitional uh, um, status is very slippery. Right, anything conceivably could be described as a blockbuster. Right, the word gets used loosely all the time, um, and it's almost as though this is the kind of thing that uh, it, it's everybody kind of assumes they already know all they need to know about it. It's so popular, it's so obvious, they're so simple that you don't really need to take them take them seriously. Well, the result is that we haven't really had the full kind of deep historical dive to to trace out well where did this come from where did the story come from so i i, I looked at uh, many glossaries of of uh, film terms and they wouldn't even have the term blockbuster even though these are the most viewed most lucrative uh financially lucrative films uh, uh that have ever been made uh, but they wouldn't even have a definition for it in these standard glossaries. Um, there are some that do, but uh, so this is surprising to me, right? Um, and, uh, and and so that's really sparked me to say, okay, I've got to try to find a way to to trace this out. I want to get to the part of the book where you talk about technology, since <laughs> most people these days, when they think of blockbusters. Those are the kind of films, the you know, what your average person like you've been talking about, you know, it's the ones that are clearly been made with a lot of computers, and yet people don't seem to understand that a lot of movies these days use computers. We just don't know it because it's not so obvious. But anyway, um, we're, you, you brought them up before, and we can come back to them since he's so important to your last to the third part of the book, which is James Cameron and his work to improve you know to improve the ability to do things on a film that you couldn't do in the past without some pretty bad special effects right <laughs> and, yeah and the, yeah yes and the uh, uh the story that uh w one of the threads of the story that i uh, uh present in the book is is to show that the the origin of the term blockbuster we could have had all sorts of terms for these grand you know, just epics or spectaculars or super colossals or uh some of the versions of films uh, of uh, the ways in which 
uh, big budget uh, spectacles, film spectacles were described before. But blockbuster, that term has a very specific history, which is as a, a, a popular term for what in the first, uh, in the, in, in the uh, uh, 1942, 1943, 1944, uh, was the, the largest uh, uh, ordinance military, it was a bomb, uh, that was used during during World War II, uh, and it was uh, as, as I describe in in the book. It was a weapon that was the opposite of a secret weapon. It was talked about uh, and and presented and described as a um, as a work as a as a, uh, as a weapon that was the result of uh, technological achievement. And this technological achievement would allow the Allied forces to beat um, the uh, uh, the Axis forces, and so that story was presented. It was it was a source of pride. And of course, it's a murderous uh, it's murderous hardware, uh, and um, and its uh, its actual use was to um, facilitate the uh, the strategy of firebombing um, uh, Germany and then later later Japan. Um, but that idea of the work, the 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 um, the technology, the the product that is designed to present its own technological prowess, its own technological um, innovation, that that is is what uh, I describe as being picked up as it moves as that term moves away from specifically being associated with a bomb, uh, with weaponry and moving to describe all sorts of other, uh, features of, uh, or examples of, of largeness, of bigness, of accomplishment, of success and of technological, uh, technological display. And so this is where in, in the book, I, I, uh, I refer to Lewis Mumford's concept of technological exhibitionism, and uh, which is something that he says has been one of the directions of, uh, of uh, industrial development. That is, developing technologies less for the things that they actually can accomplish to make our lives better, but more for the ways in which they can celebrate or be put on display as signs of success. It's a way of a civilization patting itself on the back right, for the things that, that, uh, that we do. And Lewis Mumford, writing in the 1960s, uh, describes uh, Egyptian pyramids uh, as that. Right? These, these are really technological exhibition, uh, exhibitionary devices uh, rather than actual functional devices that improve the lives of, uh, uh, of, of the people uh, living at the time, and he describes the American space race or space uh, program as similarly technological exhibitionism, right? You could use all of those resources to solve problems that people in, in society are encountering at that moment, but instead they're put onto this display. So I use that as a way to, to suggest that one of the things that's happening in the 1950s is the connection with as that term begins to be used, first by Blockbuster, first by the trade press, and then as a way to sell um, big uh, motion picture events to the general public, is that part of what's going on is it's dragging along with it that idea about technological exhibitionism. That you're not just seeing 
a, a, a motion picture, a grand epic, you're also seeing the peak of cinematic technology, the peak of audiovisual technology, and, and that it is going to be put on display so that you can see this accomplishment. And yes, exactly as you, as you presented, that thread is also one that continues today. So that the, whether it's the featured special effects sequence or the, uh, the uh, highlighting of the, uh, the environment that you're in which you're, you're, uh, you're watching uh, the, the film, this, the function of our uh, uh, contemporary blockbusters as well has elements of that, uh, of that technological exhibitionism. I can think of the example from George Lucas and what Lucasfilm did with the first Star Wars trilogy and how even from film to film you can see improvements. But one of the things he's, he always said, and I don't know how much of it is true, Lucas tends to reinvent his stories so many times, um, is that he didn't feel comfortable in making any more Star Wars films because he felt the technology wasn't there yet. And in fact, you mentioned uh, Cameron in, in his digital work. Obviously, Lucas is well known too. Where were the prequels? By the time of the third prequel, almost the entire film was was digital. And um, yeah. you know, the first film they used live, you know, did location work. But by the third film, it was none of it was location. It was all very much of the of a soundstage with a lot of green screen with special effects that were all digitally put together. Yes. And, and this is the one uh, feature that is, is very important and really intrigues me. It, it is on the one hand, the fact that there are these shifts in production practices and different kinds of talent that's, uh, that's required in order to make, the kind of film that we see t today as different from some, uh, some earlier uh, uh, processes and uh, uh, um, uh, craft uh, elements that put, uh, put films together, did, the, did different kinds of effects in earlier eras. It's that, but also it's also the fact that we talk about it so much. Right, so that the the it it's not just that a, a film is made in this way, that the process of making it, the kinds of uh, uh, technological features, become part of what populates our DVD or Blu-ray extras. They become uh, featurettes of various sorts. They the 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 webs the online websites that are devoted to the fandom of talking about and understanding these uh, uh, these elements of, of the motion picture. It changes how we encounter a work because we're understanding it in relationship to ideas about technological innovation. Uh, and uh, so sometimes it gets talked about along, you know, as, as these are better special effects or worse special effects, or these are more convincing or more surprising than than others and, and 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 I understand that but along with that is is simply that 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 root uh, uh, impulse drive uh, priority uh, to be talking about the technological feature um, and as you as you framed the question earlier you're right there are lots of films that use 
various technological mechanisms. There's lots of uh, different uh, artistic or uh, or creative practices that use all sorts of different uh, technological practices, experiments, innovate. But the ways in which the American blockbuster talks about this so much is part of what brings it into that realm of technological exhibitionism. And I then connect it in the book to the 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 fact that this is actually one of the features of our contemporary existence. The, the ways in which our ordinary life is oriented toward the technological solution, the technological capability, the technological uh, architecture. And to say, all right, so what? to what extent has the blockbuster actually not just shifted its its production and distribution and marketing orientation to the blockbuster, but that this orientation has actually helped uh, pave the way, uh, helped make us attuned to, yes, of course, there's a big movie. I'm going to be curious about its technological backdrop. Uh, that, I think, is, is, is key, and that's key to, to trying to put this dominant form into the context of the life we live in this particular historical moment. And speaking of the technological, and you mentioned this earlier, and we can come back to it now, is what technology, how it changed the actual film watching and going experience. Uh, I think back to 2002 and that period of time when we start to see theaters advertising that you can see a film two different ways, the traditional you know, way and also digital and start to sell it as a as as a good or, or good process and of course now it's become the way for the average person to see film yes that's right you, you mentioned my earlier work screen traffic uh which was uh, a documentation of the exhibition industry's efforts to reorient what it uh what its business was what it would offer uh, through the uh, end of the 1980s and into the 1990s, and uh, and and one of the terms that was introduced was the it's mostly a story of multiplexing, but that term the megaplex was really my my starting point for thinking about thinking about this. But I think it's 94 where that term begins to circulate, not just in in trade context, the megaplex and uh, trade context, but also in uh, in uh, in popular sources and in that one could understand or one could uh, recognize the ways in which the environment uh, of motion picture consumption had to be changed along with different kinds of practices as well lining up with the kinds of works that were being produced uh, and released uh, by um, uh, by hollywood uh, and this included Different kinds of design features, right? The, uh, the, the steeper slope in auditoriums, um, uh, for instance, or seats with cup holders, the, these kinds of things, but also other kinds of technological standards. Uh, uh, THX, for instance, the different kinds of sound standards that uh, that that uh, are, are adopted much more. Uh, uh, fully uh, in in the 1990s, and that book ends uh, just as digital cinema is starting to inch its way 
into uh, in, into mainstream mainstream practice. So when I came to American Blockbuster, um, I, I, I initially started that work thinking of it as as kind of a sequel to to screen traffic, right? To sort of pick up part of the story uh, where 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 it left off to think about the second half of the 2000s. And that was when I realized in doing that work, uh, realizing the particularity of Cameron, uh, but then also realizing that there actually wasn't enough work on the pre-story. Uh, and so leapfrog back to the uh, 40s and 50s in order to uh, to tell that uh, that story as well. But as you say, in the 2000s, you start to see that first decade of, uh, of this of the century. Uh, you, you start to see films not just being advertised for their stars or their uh, the genre or their, the story that they're telling, uh, but being advertised according to how you can see it. Right? And and I, uh, I use the example of an avatar ad that says, you know, you should see it. Um, uh, it's or presenting it as everywhere and seeing it every way. So, so and it actually, the ad, the newspaper ad uh, includes um, a recommendation that one of your choices is 2D. And, and that's fascinating, the idea that you would have in a newspaper ad telling you you can opt to see this in 2D, uh, which just simply meant the regular uh, format, not the 3D and not digital and not IMAX. But this differentiation suggests to say nothing me, of what some of the experimentation that... Uh, Oh, what's his name? I completely, I shouldn't have started this sentence without remembering. <laughs> oh, uh, Jackson and uh, the Hobbit movies. And right. Using that's unusual right. frame rates. That's right. The high frame rate uh, uh, examples. That's right. Yes. And uh, uh, and this is, um, uh, which of course is, is then something I understand Cameron has been using for the Avatar uh, sequels as well, the high frame rate uh, production. Um, so, this is this is just to say that that these this when when we, we are creating an environment in which when audiences are going to the movie theater they're going to a, a situation in which they are be, being made aware of the technological environment they're being asked to choose uh, between the different technological environments uh, and to understand that in fact the film is a different film. Right. It, and how do we know that that's the case? Because people are willing or not to pay for that difference. Right. right? That the IMAX will be 3D in most. Theaters. Exactly. That's right. The, right. So so there, there's there's a market, if you will, a, a markup uh, uh, on this uh, on on these different technologies. So there that this tells us it is meaningful in some way. Right. It is meaningful. And so so uh, much of my uh, uh, argument, uh, I, I refer to um, some of the David Denby uh, arguments that, well, you know, audiences today are becoming platform agnostic. Right. That they that, you know, we, we live in an environment where you could see it on your phone or you could see it on an iPad or you could see it on television or you can see it in the movie theater. Right. So people don't really care. And my argument is the exact opposite that we're living in an environment where, where people may see it in those different circumstances, but the, each of them comes with it. I'm watching a movie on an iPad. I'm watching a movie on a phone. I'm, those are technological formations right, in which 
we understand that encounter is taking place. You're no longer watching just a movie, right? You are consuming that IMAX environment. You're consuming the, the D-Box or the 4D things that, uh, that you can see in certain locations where they squirt water at you and, uh, uh, and have fog, right? So there's, all of those things are particular to our circumstance. This adds to that technological exhibitionism, making the technological formation, structure, architecture, that much more central to that event. So I know this wasn't part of the book, and we talked about it briefly at the beginning, but what are you? What other things are you thinking about, about, you know, related to the pandemic and blockbusters? We obviously know now that a lot of films, the blockbusters we were expecting this year, have all been postponed. Um, we even saw that Apple was trying to decide with to, to possibly buy the rights to show the initial showing of the, la- of the next James Bond movie on television, you know, on their format. But it didn't, it didn't happen. But what do you feel? I mean, next year or, or maybe the year after when things are quote-unquote normal again, What's the role of the blockbuster at that point? Will it come back exactly as is? Are people going to say, yeah, I still want to go see it that way? Yeah, this is this is the, the million, or should I say multi-billion dollar yeah, question. I should say trillion, probably. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I, uh, I, I have many ideas about this, but of course, uh, it's very easy to be proven wrong because we live in a world of extreme unpredictability uh, and uh, and things can happen that are going to uh, surprise us that we can have no account for. Um, however, there are some things that we know. We know that the American movie business has gone through many different crises and it's lived through so many different um, examples of uh, of moments where its death has been described as imminent. Uh, and even quite recently, right, the death of cinema was generally an accepted idea in the nineteen in the nineteen nineties, uh, as recently as that. Uh, that we're just we're living through the last days of this form. Uh, and at each of those moments, it seems as though people have underestimated the um, the ability of the motion picture entertainment business, let's expand it from movies specifically, uh, the motion picture entertainment business to to adapt, right, to do different things. Uh, and its relationship to streaming, I think, is really important right now. Um, every time I hear that, oh, another film is being released to streaming that was going to go to the, to the theaters first right now during the pandemic, uh, that tells me that, uh, well, for every, for every instance of that, we can also find instances where, uh, where distributors are holding back films that they think will actually draw people out. Uh, and that tells me that there's still some faith in the blockbuster model, that there are certain kinds of films that work well inside the architecture of a motion picture theater uh, better than they work elsewhere, and better meaning not just in terms of fidelity to an artistic, to, to the to the original construction or to an artistic vision, but also better in so much as 
it will bring people out, right? People will go and see this, these works. And so it tells me that there's still, so I would say that, you know, if, if there's a moment when we hear that the Bond film or the Wonder Woman uh, 1984 is going to streaming, then we're going to have to have this conversation again because that does mean things are different. But right now, <laughs> they, they are holding those back, right? Uh, so you wanted to add in there. One of the things that I have found, at least we talk about, you know, holding back and, and that is that many of the tentpole places like Marvel and DC especially, because they're the ones that seem to be the most ubiquitous these days, they are purposely doing things for different groups. So, for example, each of them have their TV or streaming, you know, things that are meant for streaming on top of the ones that they still plan on only showing in the the theaters. And we see the same thing with with Disney and Lucasfilm, where they have got their TV ones, but that does not necessarily replace what they still want to do in the theaters. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, so, so we'll see, like, it will, when uh, uh, there's some level of opening up, uh, will people be comfortable going back to motion picture theaters? Probably not for a while. However, will people be willing to make an exception for an exceptional work? I would think that, that the chances of that are, are, are probably pretty high. Uh, and it, it's almost as though, the industry will need another avatar, and there's a chance it might be Avatar. <laughs> well, here in the but United might... States, theaters have yeah. opened, at least in some places. And, and, of course, the big film that everybody banked on at the time was Tenet. That's and right. uh, it did well. I mean, people, but yeah. most of the, as you point out, the theaters yeah. are running on very small budgets and exactly. things. They're, they're mostly showing yeah. older films. Uh, that's right. So that's right. Well, and that's that is going to be one of the uh, uh, one of the offshoot um, uh, consequences, which is that the more that, uh, that the fewer films that are released, the bigger that those films are, which I think is probably going to be the case a year from now. You're going to have a lot of real estate open for smaller films. So it's possible that the uh, that there are what in the 1950s were called the in-betweeners, right? The tasteful middle-brow films. Uh, you may see more, which now you tend to find those on television or, uh, or on the streaming service. Um, uh, it's possible you will see some of those in theaters too. Uh, they might not expect to make as much, but this, as was the case in the 1990s and, uh, and, and 2000s, a lot of times a theatrical release is, is designed as a marketing uh, uh, venture, right? It's, it's about awareness for the sale and the viewer later. Um, and uh, so it's possible we'll see that. And again, even uh, more niche uh, uh, genres. So, so how this is going to play out, right? Those, you know, what, uh, certainly we're going to see some closings of, of theaters. There's, there's no question uh, of that, but how this will play out is is still it's it's still up for grabs. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, for instance, t- you mentioned Tenet. I, I think that the last time I looked, it's still over the 400 million mark worldwide. Uh, it's it's the percentage of the U.S. take is lower than uh, much lower than expected, but 
That's and it's supposed to come that, out and did it's supposed to come out right. for streaming in December. So yeah, um, it will be so, you know people who may want to see it multiple times, which from what I understand is probably the best way to handle that right, film. Right, they'll be right. able to much easier. Exactly, and so so this is a work that I think is indicative of the uh, the comfort level that certain aspects of the American. Uh, motion picture entertainment business have have built, which is its reliance on international markets. So uh, I, I looked at where where we are for uh, 2020, and and you can in terms of the top films, and uh, and and in those top films, usually eight to ten of those top films would be American uh, uh, would be American blockbusters. Um, now it's somewhere between six to uh, six or seven of those films, but that's still a lot, right? In terms of the biggest films in the world, we've just seen, it was a historic moment. People have been looking ahead to instances, to the moment when the, the China domestic box office would overtake the American as the most lucrative domestic box office uh, in the world, and they just did that for 2020 for the first time. But of course, the pandemic is the reason for that. Um, and and even so, their box office is down. I mean, to this point in the year, we're we're talking in uh, in November here. Um, uh, at this point in the year, their box office is down. It's just a little over 20% what it usually would be. The American is a little lower than 20% of what it would expect it to be. It's not that different, right? Those two markets are still relatively sound. There's no market that's going to come close to, to, to the two of them in, uh, in the world. And the American one is just that much more lucrative in terms of its international so even though the domestic box office would be down, those American movies are doing very, very well um, uh, elsewhere. Again, this is all relative, right? This is all emergency crisis forms of uh, uh, forms of, uh, of, of monitoring and, uh, and and of course decision making too. I think you're right. One of the most interesting things about your book is that it's it came at a time that this whole concept is definitely going to continue to be a topic of discussion. It's not going to be as usual anymore, and uh, how the different filmmakers and distributions and things happen will continue to be interesting in the foreseeable future in the film industry, So, or the blockbuster industry, I guess is a better way of putting it. So really a Really appreciate the time you gave me, Charles, and I hope uh, the book is doing well and will continue to do well. Well, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. My great thanks to Charles Ackland, and I suggest that you read his book to understand why the big-budget epic blockbuster has become so important to Hollywood. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.